You are listening to the IFH Podcast Network. For more amazing filmmaking and screenwriting podcasts, just go to ifhpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast, episode number 337. Cinema is a matter of what's in the frame and what's out. Now more than ever, we need to talk to each other, to listen to each other, and understand how we see the world and cinema is the best medium for doing this. Martin Scorsese. Broadcasting from a dark, windowless room in Hollywood, when we really should be working on that next draft, it's the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast, showing you the craft and business of screenwriting while teaching you how to make your screenplay bulletproof. And here's your host, Alex Ferrari. Welcome, welcome to another episode of the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast. I am your humble host, Alex Ferrari. Now, today's show is sponsored by Bulletproof Script Coverage. Now, unlike other script coverage services, Bulletproof Script Coverage actually focuses on the kind of project you are and the goals of the project you are. So we actually break it down by three categories, micro-budget, indie film market, and studio film. There's no reason to get coverage from a reader that's used to reading tentpole movies when your movie's going to be done for $100,000. And we wanted to focus on that at Bulletproof Script Coverage. Our readers have worked with Marvel Studios, CAA, WME, NBC, HBO, Disney, Scott Free, Warner Brothers, The Blacklist, and many, many more. So if you need your screenplay or TV script covered by professional readers, head on over to CoverMyScreenplay.com. Enjoy today's episode with guest host, Jason Buff. Today, I'm going to be talking with Stephanie Palmer of GoodInARoom.com. Now, Stephanie is an amazing person to talk to, not only because she teaches people how to pitch their films and to pitch their projects, but also because she used to work, she's an insider, she used to work in the studio system for MGM and for Jerry Bruckheimer and was there listening in on all these phone calls and things. And she doesn't talk about, you know, necessarily uh, anything that she heard that's, uh, bad, but she she really has an insider's perspective of how studios work and how people get hired for films and people get hired for screenwriting gigs. And just she really knows how it all works. So it's it's really amazing to talk to her. So the first thing that I want to talk about is, you know, you you discussed how your first job when you got into L.A. was working as an intern on Titanic. Yeah. And one of my questions was, how did you actually get that gig? How did, I mean, because there's a lot of people who are just moving out to LA looking for, you know, any way to kind of get in. I was Mm -hmm. curious about that. Sure. Well, my, um, I went to Carnegie Mellon University and my major was theater directing. And my college advisor, his name was Greg Lahane, um, he was a theater director and film director and TV director. And so okay. in all the way through college, I thought, oh, I am only going to do theater. I am committed to theater. I'm going to create arts. I have no interest in the Hollywood, you know, <laughs> right. um, but uh, Greg Mahane was really smart. And he said, Stephanie, you are you would be foolish to ignore Hollywood without even trying and um, he was like, you have the right temperament for it, which in retrospect, I'm not sure that that's a compliment, but he said, <laughs> you really you really need to try before you dismiss it out of hand. Um, and right. so through him, 
uh, he, there were other college interns who had interned for this producer in Los Angeles. And so he helped me connect with the producer so that I interned over my winter break of senior year of college. And it just so happened, I totally lucked out because the day that I arrived for my internship, the producer was brought on to Titanic, which had just started shooting because it was a troubled production, if you remember. Um, right. So they were bringing on additional producers to try and get the movie in shape. Um, and so I just was in one day on the biggest movie, you know, that had been so you just kind of lucked out. I did. It was amazing. Did, were you ever on set? Did you see like, I was. The shooting with James Cameron and all that? Oh, yes. I am. Um, in retrospect, this was stupid of me, but I they <laughs> sent me the innocent looking little, you know, college student. Um, from Iowa to drive boxes of material that I was not to open over the Mexican border because it was shooting in uh, Mexico. And right. so I was off and running whatever materials, I don't know what they were, um, from Los Angeles to the set in Mexico. And then I also got to stay um, and be in the production office with the producers, with Jim Cameron, with the whole team. Um, it was really amazing. And I mean, you the coolest thing was that when I arrived the first time, it was at night and they were shooting. And when you drive, you sort of like crested this hill and then you saw the entire Titanic ship all lit up at night. <laughs> but then yeah. when you're actually on set, only one side of the ship, of course, is actually built. And the whole reverse side is um, construction site, you know, with the scaffolding and construction elevators and extras all speaking Spanish. Um you know, playing cards and drinking right. coke and smoking cigarettes um, in their period costumes, you know, behind the scenes. And what, what was James Cameron like? Like, is he just like frantic on the set or was he pretty cool? Um, well, he wasn't cool in the sense of like, hey, who are you, Stephanie? Let me get to know you. I don't know who you are. Um, right. No, he was not friendly in that way, but he was totally um, in control. I mean, I did see a few, I did witness a few outbursts um, not only from him, but from other people on the set and from the, some of the actors um, who were upset by how things were going because it really was a pretty crazy um, shoot and there were weather issues and people were getting injured and money was spiraling out of control. It was just a giant, um, there, were, there were a lot of factors going on at that time. But my goal was to basically sponge in as much information as I could and mm -hmm. to sit there in the production office and be able for whatever was needed and figure out what needed to happen, but not to cause any issue myself, of course. And so I pretty much was invisible until called upon, and then I would figure out whatever the issue was and solve it. it was, was there anything terrific. that surprised you that you weren't expecting? I mean, did you have some sort of idea or, or vision of how a, a film set worked? I think, well, I had never been on a film set before, but I think my expectation was that Hollywood, like my negative stereotype was that these were a lot of pretty flaky people who were just obsessed with money and not really focused on creating a great, compelling story. Um, mm -hmm. And what I found was that people were incredibly hardworking and really smart and really dedicated and um, were using all of their creative facility to do the best job that they could, you know, at all levels of anyone that I came in contact with on the set. Um, and so it was, it was an awakening or a surprise to me for just how smart and creative and 
interesting the people were. Um, and that was mm-hmm. totally what convinced me, oh, wait, I'm being stupid here. I thought, you know, only smart people were in theater. That was a dumb idea of mine. <laughs> um, but, you know, maybe I should open my mind to this possibility. And I love the pace. I love the um, just how exciting it was. And, I mean, you're working on such a giant scale that you're never going to get to do something like that in theater. So that was exciting. Right. Yeah. That that's funny, you know. It's like, yeah, literally working on the biggest film at that point ever made, you know? <laughs> or at least, I mean, I don't know that it was the biggest ever, but it was certainly a budget of more than two hundred million dollars, which was yeah, well, most expensive. And at the time, we thought making the biggest flop that had ever been made. Oh really? <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, it was it was such a troubled movie that everyone thought, oh, this. Is there was a lot of chatter that. going on behind yeah. the scenes. Yeah. Right. So then you moved from there to working with Jerry Bruckheimer, is that right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how, how did that end up happening? What what did you transition into there? Um, so then I was a development assistant. I was the assistant to the president of um, development and production. And I also got that job basically through other people I knew um, through college who had heard and who I met with, you know, who knew that I did a really good job at my internship. So they knew that I could deliver. Um and so I started there as an assistant, and that also was just a terrific opportunity um, where the best part of the job was that I got to listen in on every phone call or almost every phone call, um, which is one of the weird things about Hollywood where producers and executives and directors and writers are all talking on the phone and it's as if they pretend that their assistants are not listening in, but they all have assistants <laughs> who are listening in. Right. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Uh Um, And so it was my job to make sure that anything that my boss said was followed through. You know, if he said, okay, we're going to send this over, we're going to fix the script this way, we're going to make a meeting with so-and-so and and -and so-and-so, that I would know that it was just my job to follow up on anything that he said. So I needed to listen in. Um, and it was an amazing, amazing education to really see how deals are done and who's pitching who and who's, um, you know, who gets the attention of the movie star or the agency president or the whoever, you know, whoever the investor, whoever they needed to get their attention. Um, I really got to listen in on at the highest level of how those deals were being made. Right. And so... What what year was that that you moved that you worked at? That was 1998. Okay, so that was just after Don Simpson had passed away, right? Yes, he had passed away. His brother was still working there, um, and a, and his assistant and a lot of the people who um, worked with Don were um, still working there. But he had passed away by the time I started working there. Right. So the the shenanigans that had been going on there, kind of. It was, I it assume was different. They yes. Like there yeah. were a lot of people who knew, you know, and had worked there during that time, but Jerry is not that way. It, you know, it's not like Party Central or any of that sort of stuff. It's, it's serious right. business. Um, and so that was that was what it was like. And I was there for Conair, Armageddon, and Enemy of the State. Okay. So you were you privy to any of the conversations with Michael Bay? <laughs> oh, yes. I mean, hundreds, like every day. Anything that you can, anything that you can, like, share with us. Not, not anything, you know, juicy or illicit. But I mean, uh, is there anything you can share about that? 
Well, he was exactly as you would expect. Um, I mean, I remember so often my job was like driving his car around, which is, of course, worth more than my entire net worth, you know, times a zillion, Um, (laughs) you know, or like gas with his car and things like that. Um, You know, he was extremely focused on work. Um, He, he, I think the thing that struck me is that even though he has such, you know, testosterone, popcorn movies, he's not approaching it in any way as a joke or as Mm. um, like, eh, this is kind of trashy commercial movies. That is not his, that is not the way he's approaching it. He is, he is, he understands that that's the movie that he's making, but he is going to use all of his talents to make it the most amazing explosion. And how can we beat the most amazing explosion that we've ever made, you know, that's ever been captured on film in the history of film? Or how can we make this the most insane adrenaline rush? And he's, he is so focused on that. Right. Now, is that world pretty isolated? I mean, are the people that are getting in and pitching, is that primarily um, agents or is that, how do you get into that world? You know, are there people that are pitching that are just screenwriters off there the street? Are or are pitching who, who are lone screenwriters, but almost all have been recommended and almost all are represented and frankly represented at one of the top four agencies. Um, and particularly they... I mean, you, you pretty much have to be represented um, and already have established credits before you're getting into somewhere like Jerry Bruckheimer or Michael Bay's company just because they get so many submissions that they can be extremely selective. And so they're going to just spend time with like the most filtered, the most, you know, the cream of the crop, because already that's so much more than you can even deal with. Right. Okay. Um, now... Let me talk about writing for just a second because I know you sure. work, you've worked a lot with screenwriters and everything. Um, you know, one of the things that we, you know, and I'm a screenwriter and we talk to people who screen are screenwriters at both the uh, studio level um, mm-hmm. and people who do more independent films, more genre pictures like horror movies and stuff yep. like that. Now, what, in your experience, when you're, you know, you're, you're meeting screenwriters who are writing at the very highest level, um, how what what is usually the process? Do they typically have, for example, a screenplay that they write that they submit um, that gets like attention from an agent or they they get a project and an agent like finds them after they've already gotten some attention. And the screenplays that they're writing, are they just like completely original and great, or do they follow more of the the genre? are they more like um, what's the word I'm looking for? like uh, like following uh, a template or like... Yeah, yeah, kind of. I mean, are they more like cookie cutter? Can I, I, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's a complicated question, but you, you yeah. can understand what I'm saying. Okay. Um, well, let's, let's, because I think you're asking a couple different things. So yeah. one, it sounds like, how do they get an agent or how do you get an agent? Mm-hmm. Sounds like one question that we could certainly dive into because I've helped lots of people um, get agents and we can talk about that. But then okay. also... If your goal is to sell a screenplay to a studio and, you know, get in the writer's guild, make a hundred thousand for the script that's sold or more, of course, hopefully, um, you know, how do writers do that? Does that sound? Yeah. Right. Both of those. Okay. <laughs> those, those are the questions. Okay. Well, I would start with the agent question. Um, and that is, 
the main way that that agent finds new clients is through referral. And that referral can come from a manager, which is something that I recommend for most writers, not everybody, but most writers to focus on getting a manager before getting an agent. Because the, there are, there's a lot of overlap between what a manager and an agent does. But managers generally are more approachable. They are more interested in a long-term relationship where they're going to focus, they're going to nurture the client, um, work with them more on the draft, talk about, okay, here's your different ideas. This one seems like the best next, you know, step. Let's focus mm-hmm. on this one, work with you to develop it, and then um, launch your career and hopefully be with you over the long haul. And managers typically have 10 to 20 clients whereas an agent will have 100 to 150 clients. So they just don't have the time to do that sort of nurturing, nor, frankly, do they have the interest or skill, most of them. Um, So they're much more focused on making the deal, sort of like the very end of the process. And both have um, value to bring to the table in most cases, Um, but they do have somewhat different roles. And so getting a manager first is, is... my recommendation for most people. And the and most managers will then say, okay, you know, Jason, it's been terrific to work with you. I know exactly. You should either meet with this agent or this agent. They would love your kind of material. They specialize in this genre. You know, they hook it up so that you meet both agents and then you choose who you like the most. Um, that's the most frequent way. Other ways that agents find clients is through referrals from their current clients because they know that if you've enjoyed working with them, you're delivering, you're getting paid, that you likely have friends who are also like that. Um, and so they will trust your saying, you know, if, if, if you, Jason, are represented at William Morris Endeavor and you say, your agent, agent, I have this friend, Stephanie, she wrote this amazing thriller, you should read it, but the agent's much more likely to read it and say, oh, yeah. You know, Stephanie seems interesting, or vice versa. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> agents generally do not accept query letters or um, any sort of direct approach. It's much more like they are expecting that you have built a professional network of people to be able to get a referral because that skill set of meeting people, connecting with them, wanting to work with them, collaborate with them is a skill that is so essential to continuing to get hired over and over again um, that that's like the kind of like the threshold of where agents will consider people. Um, so uh, the the direct approach rarely ever works. It usually people just are ignored or say, you know, we don't accept unsolicited submissions or we're not interested because mm-hmm. they're, they're looking for people to come in by referral, by personal referral. Okay. Um, but that doesn't have to be, it may seem overwhelming, but it actually can happen pretty easily. Um, it, it, it can happen quite quickly. There are lots of examples of people who through quite casual connections have gotten agents. It's just not going the direct, here's my, you know, sending you a letter. Here's my script. Please represent me. That, virtually never works. Right. Um, you have to be in L.A., do you think, to, I mean, this it really helps. at all? It okay. really helps. It is not required. Um, there are examples of people who who um, get agents 
remotely. What is required? Well, if you want to be in TV, it is absolutely required. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. To do film, especially independent film, it's it's not as required, um, especially if you can develop a network of people that you're working with in wherever you live. And one of them may be um, represented by someone in Los Angeles or if you can make connections online, which obviously are doing so well. Um, it, 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 you know, those hurdles can be overcome. But even in film, you really benefit from having meetings in person. So say taking a, a trip to Los Angeles at least once a year or if you after you get representation to say, OK, I'm going to be here every other month so I can take meetings is a lot r- rarely does a script sell without having an in-person meeting. I mean, very rarely, hardly. I don't know that I can even think of an example, but I'm sure it's happened at some point. Um, <laughs> you know, so it really happens based on an in-person meeting. So you have to be right. available to meet with the people who are potentially going to buy your script to say, okay, yes, we can work with you. We, we can collaborate. I see that this is a, you know, someone that we can work with that that, I mean, maybe something's happened over Skype or something due to some extenuating circumstances, but so much of Hollywood is based on in-person meetings. So much. Right. Now, one of the things somebody had told me who also, you know, has, has been a writer for the studios is that they really don't want, you know, they want very, very original screenplays most of the time. They're not looking for, you know, your average, like something that's more... I hate to say cookie cutter, but, you know, or, or more just like straight up, um, you know, action flick or whatever. Is that is that your experience or is that kind of not true? No. <laughs> I wouldn't say it that way. Um, I mean, I would say that if you look at it's it's more, I guess, a question of how you uh, would categorize the kinds of studio movies that are coming out right now. Mm hmm. You know, if if you're saying, um, if you look at the last, you know, the year of 2015 and the top 100 movies that are 50 or 20 that have come out of the studios, would you say that those scripts are original or cookie cutter? Uh-huh. It, you know, like we might have a different, <laughs> you would say cookie cutter. Okay, then, oh, yeah. then, then cookie cutter is what they're looking for. Like you can see. I, I don't know that I would use that term personally, but that's okay. It's more um, how you define it because the answer is what people, the movies that are coming out, that's what people are buying. Right. Well, I guess what I mean is more like the, the superhero movies and stuff like the big movies that are coming out. They're all kind of, you know, most of them follow a pretty similar formula, you know. Well, Not necessarily are, the Oscar. And you're talking about the ones that are based on... Um, other material, so like based on comic books. Right, right, yeah. Based on books, based on other material. You know, I can't think of a whole lot that's not based on, you know, it's like every movie that I see in the theaters now is is some, some like derivative, you know, it's like based on a movie or it's a remake of another movie. Yes. You know, it, it just it. doesn't seem like they're taking any risks anymore. This is this is the way that studio filmmaking is going. This is why there's such a huge opportunity in independent filmmaking and why so many sort of better movies or things that I would say are better movies are coming out of the independent world. 
And part of that is because there aren't any pure film studios anymore. MGM was the last pure studio and it was acquired um, when I was there. And so basically all studios are giant corporations and conglomerates that have board of directors and they are treating movie making as a business in the same way that they're treating Seagram's soda or, you know, beverages or video games or t-shirts or merchandise or anything. Um, and so they have to meet certain benchmarks and goals and financial targets. And those are much more likely to be met if they can prove before spending the money that there is already an established audience for that movie. And the mm -hmm. way to prove that there's an established audience is to have it based on a popular book, comic book, where you can say, look at their email. 10 zillion um, action figures have been sold for the Avengers, whereas this movie by Jason and Stephanie, well, no one's ever heard of it because it's an original idea. Hmm, I think we'll have a better chance putting our money over here on this that already has, you know, <laughs> huge brand awareness. Right. Do you, do you do much in the independent world, the independent film world, now that you're coaching? Um, a lot of my clients are in the independent film world. I have never personally, all of the movies that I have personally worked on, like at the studio level, or were all studio films from Titanic through Jerry Bruckheimer through MGM. Um, but a lot of my clients now do have work in the independent world. And okay. I will, um, this November 7th um, will be my sixth or seventh, I have to look it up, maybe seventh time, leading um, the pitch conference at the American Film Market. And so okay. that's full, of course, of independent filmmakers. Right. Well, talk a second about the, that, I didn't know that you, you know, that you were. Sure. You know, being going to be part of the American film market. That's something we talk about a lot here. I've never actually been, but we, oh. we talk a lot about uh, distribution and how people, how independent filmmakers can make sure that they, you know, once they're done, that they kind of plan for distribution before they begin. We actually have a summit that's coming up in, uh, November after uh -huh. AFM, Great. it's going to feature a lot of talkers, um, speakers that, uh, you know, are kind of experts in distribution and everything. Great. So can, can you talk a little bit about what you do at, at AFM? Sure. So there's the ASM, there's the market, which is the largest film market in North America with, you know, a billion dollars in deals sold. But most of those are studio films or already completed films. Um, that's where most of those, you know, giant numbers come from. But in addition to the market, there is also a conference series, and it's really excellent, which I say, of course, as I'm involved, so, you know, take that with a grain <laughs> of salt. Um, but I'll say the other people's days are excellent, and anyone can judge my own, my own day. Okay. Um, but they, they have um, panels on marketing, distribution, um, and then pitching, and that's the um, conference that I uh, moderate, and... It's a pretty incredible opportunity because we have Cassian Elwes, who was president of William Morris Independent for 15 years and has produced personally like over 200 films, including many Oscar-winning projects. Um, and, it, you know, the Dallas Buyers Club. Um, <clears throat> um, oh, gosh, all of his credits are going to run out of my head. Um, the Dallas Buyers Club. Just run Club, to IMDb. Uh, Butler. <laughs> um, I mean, so many incredible, right. um, oh, the apostle, um, I mean, amazing movies. Mm -hmm. And, um, so he's there and then, 
Um, we also have chosen armrest from Exclusive Media, who's the president of Exclusive Media. He also has produced tons and tons of movies. And basically, between the three of us, so we're the three panelists on stage, and I invite between 10 and 15 people from the audience to come up and pitch their project to both Cassie and Tobin and myself, but also the audience of more than a thousand filmmakers. And they just get two minutes. And so these filmmakers pitch their project for two minutes and then Cassie and Tobin and I critique them. But what's so exciting is that over the last, this is now the fifth year, I think, because the three of us have done it together. Basically each year, someone's project gets made either by someone on stage or from someone in the audience hearing and saying, I want to fund this film and make it happen. So it's a really Are they usually pretty green when they go up there? Or are they, they, they... Um, it's a wide range. Even though we select, um, we pre-green some and then choose some randomly from the audience, it is a wide range. Some are truly terrible, even though they know that they're going to get the opportunity, and some are really excellent. I can't imagine. So in front of a thousand people pitching your project, I, it is I think I would right. pass out. It is really <laughs> nerve-wracking. And this is not just random people. These are people, many of whom are film investors who really could write the check to get your film made. Right. But it's an awesome well, I guess, opportunity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Has, has, uh, one more thing about AFM, and then I want to sure. go into to, to specifically into pitching. Um, what What is your impression? Has AFM changed over the years? Is it because I've had different people make comments about it. I was wondering what your impression was. Well, you know, my perspective isn't really valuable here because I am not someone pitching film. I would be really interested right. in what other people have said. And also my role has stayed so consistent. So, um, I mean, the only thing that I've noticed is that it just keeps getting bigger because the ballrooms okay. that we do these conferences in just keep getting bigger. But that is a totally unhelpful um, perspective. <laughs> you know, like my perspective is not the same as someone who has a film that they're trying to sell, and that's that's what's so much more valuable. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Right. Well, you know, it's kind of like putting together the uh, the puzzle. It's like everybody's perspective. You know, that puts together what the actual reality is. So everybody's perspective is, is valuable. Um, so, okay, talking about these people who, who come and pitch. Now, I want to, you know, I have to come clean. I'm probably the world's worst pitcher. I, oh, I'm I don't terrib- know, Jason. Absolutely you speak ter- pretty clearly and articulately <laughs> on this podcast. I had a lot of coffee. Otherwise, <laughs> I, would be, I would be all mumbling. But um, so let me let me... First talk about, okay, you know, if I go, whenever somebody, you know, I, I was pitching a, a film project two years ago and I had to go and pitch it to a bunch of different people. And th- these weren't big executives. I was just pitching it to sure. um, local investors, you know. Yeah, but, um, but that, you, you want them, you you care about the result, though so it's totally understandable right. to be nervous. Yes. Mm-hmm. So people, the first thing out of my, uh, the people would do when I would go, you know, I would, I would have a meeting and we'd sit down and whatever. They'd, they'd be, you know, well, tell me about your film. And I would mm-hmm. just be like, <laughs> I would just not even know where to even start. So can you walk us through, you know, just go walk us through like a perfect, what you would consider a perfect pitch or whatever, you know, whatever you consider that would help people, you know, become better at uh, pitching. Okay. Well, the first thing I would say is to prepare answers to likely questions. 
So okay. now you know this most likely question, which is absolutely the most frequently asked. Either they'll say, tell me about your film or, you know, what did you come here to pitch me today? So you can expect if you're having one of these meetings, any kind of meeting, independent film, studio film, with investors, with executives, producer, director, anything, you're going to be expected to have an answer to tell me what your story's about. And so it, my, my main suggestion is to prepare for that. And that even though when you deliver it, you're going to make your answer seem like you came up with it on the spot, the pros mm -hmm. have this one, two, or three sentences memorized. And so you have prepared ahead of time, basically like a teaser for your project. And I want to know, you know, who is the main character? What is the story about? Okay. Um, and I can go into more detail, but, but that's a good starting place of basically preparing for the most likely questions. Now, you also said, um, I remember that you should also mention what the genre is, right? Absolutely, right up front, okay. because it is so common that people will not mention the genre, and it is so easy to get confused. So, like, for example, you could say, you know, I have this project, and it's about the CIA, and I might assume that you're talking about a comedy, like Meet the Parents, but mm -hmm. you might be actually talking about a drama, like The Good Shepherd, or an action movie, like The Born Identity, but or even a thriller, like Three Days of the Condor. But if your story, this, as you start telling me the plot of the characters, if it doesn't match up with my impression that this is going to be a comedy, then I'm going to think you are totally off the rails. You know, the story is not going to make sense to my expectation simply because the genre wasn't clear. Okay. So you'd go in and say, this is a comedy, or you'd say this, this is, is a This is, you know, my project, exactly, is a comedy about da-da-da. Okay. So you, you would say that, you, you give what, like a kind of a log line, mm -hmm. or do you, do you I, try I to... I do. I like a log line. I think of it more as a selling log line, because it mm -hmm. doesn't have to totally accurately reflect your project. It, in, like in a court of law, it doesn't need to match, this is what happens in Act 1, Act 2, Act 3. It needs to be more like a, a, a selling commercial, you know, something that makes the that shares the most intriguing aspects. Okay. What is the part of your story that's going to get hook someone and want them to read your get them to want to read your script? That's what you share right up front. Okay. Do you want to leave it like open, like you don't tell them what uh, if they actually, you know, get the girl at the end, or they actually succeed at saving their daughter or whatever? Or do you want to pretty much tell them everything, or do you want to kind of keep it like? So they, they're curious about it. Personally, I like to, I suggest revealing the whole thing. Because if okay. you're pitching to a potential investor or a studio executive or a film producer, people who work in the business, that's a different audience than if you were creating a commercial to sell your movie to get someone to come into the theater and pay $10. So that professional wants to know what's going to happen at the end. And I don't okay. like the... Like when people used to pitch me and I was at MGM and they would say, well, you're going to have to read the script to find out what happens in my mind. I would think, <laughs> like, no, I'm not. not. I'm not going to. <laughs> um, so personally, I like to know, okay, you've thought of 
here's what's going to happen. You know, you, you, it's clear that there's a purpose behind how you made the choices for Act 1, Act 2, and Act 3. Okay. You know, the, the idea I always do, whenever I think of pitching, I always think of that scene in The Player. Yes. You know, where the guy's describing the, the, um, the umbrellas that look like Chinese lanterns. And, right. You know, do you, I mean, do, do people come in and like, it's surprising you know, are, are they like dramatic? Yeah, really? Okay. Yeah. It, I mean, it's a little lame, but people do some wacky, crazy things. We open outside the largest penitentiary in California. It's night. It's rainy. A limousine comes in through the front gate, past a tight knot of demonstrators holding a candlelight vigil. The candles under the umbrellas make them glow like Japanese lanterns. That's nice. I haven't seen that before. That's good. A lone demonstrator, a black woman, steps in front of the limousine. The lights illuminate her like a spirit. Her eyes fix upon those of the sole passenger. The moment is devastating between them. He's the DA, she's the mother of the person that's being executed. You're good. See, I told you, he's good. Go on. Okay. The DA believes in the death penalty. And the execution is a hard case, black, 19, and definitely guilty. We're in the greatest democracy in the world, and 36% of the people on death row are black. Poor, disadvantaged, more, more. black. He swears the next person he sees to die is going to be smart, rich, and white. You may... Uh, oh, what a hook. Uh, beauty hook. Cut to the chase, dog. Okay, okay, okay. Cut from the DA to an upmarket suburban neighborhood. A couple have a fight. He leaves in a fit, gets in a car. It's a same rainy night. The car spins out on a road, goes into a ravine. The body is swept away. Now, when the police examine the car, they find the brakes have been tampered with. It's murder. The DA decides to go for the big one. He's going to put the wife in the gas chamber. But the DA falls in love with the wife. But of course he falls in love with the wife. But he puts her in the gas chamber anyway. Then, he finds out the husband is alive. That he faked his death. The DA breaks into the prison, runs down death row. But he gets there too late. The gas pellets have been dropped. She's dead. I tell you. There's not a dry eye in the house. She's dead? She's dead. She's dead. Because that's the reality. The innocent die. Who's the DA? Ah, no one. No one? No stars on this project. We're going out on a limb on this one. You know, uh, like unknown stage actors or maybe somebody English. Like, what's his name? Why? 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 Because this story is just too damned important to risk being overwhelmed by personality. Yeah, that's fine for action pictures, but this is special. We want real people here. We don't want people coming with any preconceived notions. We want them to see a district attorney. Bruce Willis. No, not Bruce Willis, not Kevin Costner. This is an innocent woman fighting for her life. Julia Roberts. Forget her. Of we can give. If I'm perfectly honest, if I think about this... This isn't even an American film. It's not. No, no. There are no stars. No pat happy endings. No Schwarzenegger, no stick-ups, no, no terrorists. This is a tough story. A tragedy in which an innocent woman dies. Why? Because that happens. And does that, like, help? Or, I mean, I, I guess, you know, when I, I lived in L.A. very briefly in, in uh -huh. 1999, and... The thing that I, I I could have just completely invented this, but it just seemed like there was this like these rules that like weren't written anywhere, but how you're supposed to act. 
You know what I mean? Is there any sort of like just taboo, like people that would just like do stuff that, that would instantly get kind of a mark against them? I mean, not like crazy, crazy stuff, but I mean. Well, I mean, know. there certainly are deal breakers. Um, some of the deal breakers are like just rushing in the minute that you meet someone the first time, you know, like, hi, I'm Stephanie. Okay, nice to meet you. Here's my project. You know, and you start pitching. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Um, Before the person even gets to take a breath or build any sort of rapport, because if someone does want to work with you or buy a project from you, it's going to be a long-term relationship. It's not just like, you know, buying a pack of potato chips at the grocery store and you might never see the grocery clerk again, you know, so you don't have to think about it so much. It's like, no, you're going to be working with this person in depth for probably a year or more. So that rapport and taking time to get to know the person as a person is so important. Um, I mean, there are other deal breakers like just extreme nervousness, which is absolutely understandable. But if someone isn't able to handle their nerves enough to be able to have that initial meeting, it's unlikely when things get stressful in the process of making a movie that they would be able to handle that. So that can be a turnoff, certainly. Um, I mean, there were, you know, bad cases of someone who was so nervous that they left a writer-shaped stain, um, sweat stain on my couch, Um, (laughs) you know, or people who are drunk or, you know, things like that. that Oh, really? You get to know that? Oh, Oh, my gosh. No, because it is. There's a lot on the line and people kind of freak out Um, because if someone does say, yes, we're going to make this movie, that can be a a life-changing. There's a lot on the line there. Right. Yeah. Did you ever have those moments where you had like a guy come in and, and it kind of just, it all went right and he was like, he got his thing made and, you know, he was kind of, his life changed? Um, yeah. I mean, one was um, a guy named Mike who I loved, loved his script. Um, and it was a <clears throat> teen comedy and mm. he came in to pitch it, but he was pretty nervous. Not so crazy nervous, but he was definitely quite nervous, but I loved his script. And so I said, okay, Mike, I'm going to help you because to get for me to be able to purchase this project, this is when I was an executive, we need to go meet my boss, who's the president of the studio, and he's going to be really tough on you. And here's going to be the questions that he's going to ask so that you're prepared because I, I want us to be able to buy this project. But if he, because Mike had never sold anything before, and mm-hmm. my boss was very... Uh, sort of reticent to hire new writers because he'd been burned so many times in the past where people hadn't delivered. They'd say, oh, I can do all these things. And then they wouldn't. So he was much more used to hiring people who had lots of established credits and who he'd worked with in the past, which is also understandable. So I worked with this Mike and um, he came in the next day, met my boss, did so beautifully, totally nailed it that my boss bought the project in the room and later, after the deal had all closed, Mike revealed to me that he had been living on his sister's couch and was going to have to move back to Wisconsin because he'd totally run out of money. Um, and that was going to be the end of his, you know, Hollywood aspirations. But instead, he got this deal and he that movie didn't ultimately get made, but he's now a really big TV writer. Right. And his so, name was Mike Myers. <laughs> Not Mike Myers, but <laughs> he, he, it was really exciting. Well, can you talk about, you said the questions producers ask. So I think that's kind of the key thing we should discuss is what, what are the, 
what are the questions that, that typically producers ask when they're in the room with the, you know, somebody who's pitching? Well, certainly they're going to want to know. I mean, the great thing is, is that even though it may feel intimidating or you may feel like you're being put on the spot, um, a lot of times producers will play like devil's advocate where they're trying mm-hmm. to test you. And if they're actually asking questions, it shows that they're interested because they're not going to okay. waste time. If they're not interested, they're just going to say, thank you so much. You know, we'll be in touch. So right. it's a great sign if someone is asking you questions and hard questions, that's even better. So some of the questions are <clears throat> thinking about, you know, a, a, another point that I want to make about questions is the great thing is when the producer or the decision maker is asking you questions, you can customize your pitch based on what they are interested in. So the elements of your story that might be the strongest to you may not be what's speaking to that producer, but this is what the one of the great things about pitching in person and having in-person meeting is like maybe your project's about... I don't know, um, monster. It's a, a creature movie, and it's set in a unique location. And maybe the producer finds, maybe you love the monsters that you've created, but the producer is really interested in this location and wants to know more. Well, then go where that producer is interested in and talk about the location because that's gonna, they're going to get more involved. They're going to feel like they're participating in a story, and the more that that person starts to take ownership and be a part of it and feel like they're a part of the creative process, so much more likely that they're going to buy that project rather than something that they don't feel like they have any involvement in. That makes sense? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, you want to have like a, a, even there in the pitch, you want to try to develop a little bit of a relationship and a rapport with, with the person you're talking to. Absolutely. Okay. Now, what, what are the producers, you said that the producers that you were, you'd worked with, they were kind of afraid of being burned again. That That's interesting to me because you never really think in terms of, you know, the the producers being burned. I mean, basically what, what, you know, we like to think of ourselves as being, you know, artists and everything, but in the end we are kind of employees and we have to produce something that, you know, is going to be good for somebody else, you know. Um, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> no, I was just going to say that the, the thing that I didn't understand initially but became so much more clear is that when a decision maker says yes to a project, like whether it's an executive or it's a producer and they're saying, okay, I'm going to buy this, they're basically putting their career on the line because Mm -hmm. with one flop, an executive can get fired and not hired again in any other studio position. Right. It's not always that way, but frequently it is. So if you're at all on the line, you know, each time you say yes, it's you're saying, I'm putting my career, my livelihood, my ability to pay my rent or my mortgage, you know, on this project. It's not just, I don't know why I'm a wealthy millionaire sitting here in my fancy office with just, you know, willy-nilly throwing money around. That is not the experience. Right. Yeah, I think that's one of the, the most kind of, one of the ways you can kind of grow up, too, is a... Uh, a screenwriter or a filmmaker is to realize that the people that you're creating things for, whether it's your investors or, or whoever, you know, they're also, you know, vulnerable, you know, they have things, they have families, they have, you know, people that are depending on them and they can get fired just like you can get fired. So yeah, yeah, I think that's that's a really interesting thing. And, and that is a part of, excuse me, the process. That's like, just remembering that these other people are human and they're scared too. Even if you feel, oh my gosh, I'm so nervous to go in and pitch this person. I care so much that it goes well, that they also, they 
desperately want you to succeed. They are not thinking, eh, I think I just want to play with this Jason guy and, you know, maybe tease him a little bit because I don't have anything on my plate. No, they are thinking, please let Jason come in and blow my socks off because I want to find a project that's going to make my career, that's going to get me a promotion, that's going to make my bonus so that I can send my child to private school or I can go on this trip or I can buy a house or, you know, whatever their personal goals are. That's what they're thinking. Anytime someone new comes into pitch, it's like, please let this be the answer. <laughs> now, you, you talk a lot about genres. Um, one of the things that, that stood out to me was um, the concept of sticking to one genre and being a writer that is, you know, your go-to guy for, you know, horror or your go-to guy for action or whatever. Is that something, I mean, you believe that people, you know, writers should like carve a niche as like, I'm, I'm this kind of writer and this is what you're going to get out of me, right? I do very strongly, especially in the beginning. Because I think if you can prove that you can do one thing really well first, then you will have so much of an easier time doing having so many more opportunities. Then once you have proven I can deliver a thriller or I can deliver a horror movie or whatever comedy, whatever your genre is, that then people want to hire you in that genre, which is, it, you know, the negative term of being pigeonholed, I say you should wants to be pigeonholed because the people who are pigeonholed initially, those are the people who have really successful careers. Those are the people who are known for doing what they do, like Michael Bay. I mean, he probably is one of the wealthiest people in the business. And not that being wealthy is the is the goal for everybody, but because he has proven that he can deliver, even if you hate his kind of movies, let's pick, you know, Guillermo del Toro, someone who at least has a little different um, you know, artistic flavor pick someone who is known for doing something really, really well, then they have so much opportunity to, they can get meetings, they have connections, they have credits, they have investors who want to invest in them. It's so much easier for Guillermo to say, I'm ready to do something a little different. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. There are going to be a lot of people who want to work with him. Then if he said, I'm not going to do any of these movies because I'm scared that someone will think of me only in one, put me in a box. You know, mm-hmm. I don't want to be put in a box. Right. You find that the, I mean, is, is it really the way people say, I mean, do you see careers die that fast? I see, <laughs> so people, I see it mostly that careers don't get started. Uh-huh. That it's people will um, just, they'll be talking to people, whether it's producers or agents or, anyone they'll be like look at i have all these different projects i have a comedy i have a drama i have a thriller oh and i have this documentary i think it'd be really exciting and people who sell don't know how to sell those kinds of people because you don't it's it's uh being a generalist you know an, an expert in everything makes you think well you must not be that good at one thing even if that's not true that's how most people think and so i really take so much of what i do one-on-one is if someone has a big um, library of material, which is awesome, so awesome, that then we say, okay, what is going to be your career introduction piece? And how can we, you know, we choose that basically because by what we think will be the most, the easiest to sell, but also with something that has a commercial point of view. 
Um, we select that project and then we say, okay, well, what are two or three other of your projects that are in a similar genre or we could adjust so that they are very similar because the easiest sales that you can make are right after your first sale. Because as soon as someone has sold something, I mean, it's just like that um, heat, that heat-seeking missile. Everybody else comes around and they're like, oh, Jason just sold his first project. What else does Jason have? I want to buy it. I want to buy it. That you want to be prepared for that opportunity so that you can make a second and a third sale right away. And so that's what we, um, that's how I focus on career strategy. And I've seen that work over and over in all different kinds of genres. Okay. I have kind of a, um, well, I'm just going to ask you this. How much sure. do screenplays go for? How much are people getting paid? I, I love talking about money. So you can ask me questions okay. about money anytime. <laughs> because even though I, you know, was born in Iowa and my family, it's very it's a very craft thing. You would never talk about money within my family. I think it is so important for writers to yeah. talk about money. So I have no problem talking about it. Okay. Or the, in the studio system, <clears throat> any studio that is um, affiliated with the Writers Guild has to follow under the Writers Guild is a, uh, has to follow the Writers Guild contracts. And so a basic script is approximately $95,000 is what it's purchased for. Um, anyone can look up the Writers Guild minimums. Like if you just search Google Writers Guild minimums, you'll pull up the, the it's a big, you know, 30 page document of all the different, how much everyone is paid both in TV and film. And that's it's constantly, you know, uh, every every year it's updated. So I'm not sure of the exact, you know, maybe it's 96778 or something like that. But <laughs> approximately $100,000 um, okay. for a studio project. You have to be in the Writers Guild to sell a screenplay? No. Basically, you, you then have to join the Writers Guild, and that's $2,500. Okay. So if... It, it, to sell the script, you don't have to be in beforehand, but to get paid, you then are a member. That's like your ticket for membership, okay. being in the Writers Guild. So out of your thousand, out of your hundred thousand that you could get paid, it's the twenty five hundred is automatically taken out for the Writers Guild membership. Does that make sense? Okay. Mm -hmm. Is that like an annual fee, or is that? Um, that's the initial fee, um, okay. and then I don't know what the annual dues are, um, but I don't think it's that. I think it's Actually, I'm not sure, but I know that okay. um, that imp the dues and that sort of information would definitely be available on the Writers Guild website. Okay. But I can talk a little bit more about money if you want to. Yeah, I would because love to. I, the hundred thousand, a hundred thousand seems like so much money, and it is in a way. But that is not how much is getting deposited in any writer's account, sadly, um, because to sell a script to a studio, in most cases. Almost all cases, um, a writer would have an agent, or at least have whether they have the agent to get the screenplay sold, or whether they have an agent negotiate. Like if 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 the writer had gotten it into the studio and they want to buy it, but they don't have an agent at that point, they say, "Well, now I can get an agent, so I'm going to." Um, and so then the agent takes ten percent. So there's ten thousand right there taken off. If they have a manager, manager typically charges also 10%. Some charge 15%, but most are charging 10% these days. So that's another 10 grand um, out the door. Then there's the 2500 for the writer's guild membership. And then there's taxes. And so depending on where, how much money the person is making, you know, that's a good third um, taken out. So 
it's not nearly the life-changing amount of money um, that you expect. And the other thing is, is you don't get that $100,000 up front. It is typically split from you get a portion. It, it's split into a number of different payments over time, some of which can be even years later. Um, so unfortunately, it usually is a second or a third studio sale before a writer can like leave their day job and actually have right. enough money to live on. Now, what about options? Aren't, aren't most screenplays optioned first and then? Some are, um, some certainly are. And those, those payments can really depend um, from, you know, a few thousand to more. Um, in general, it is the studios, like everyone, want to pay the least amount possible or the most. And so if you can leverage, like if there are two studios competing and they both want to option a project or they both want to purchase it, that's where you're going to get these much bigger numbers. Um, mm. But if there's only one studio that's interested, then they're going to pay the least amount that you will accept. Okay. Now the, the you know, we're, we're talking in terms of studios, but I mean, LA is, is comprised and, and not just LA, all, all, you know, all over the place. Uh, I mean, it, it's primarily small production companies yeah. that then take their projects to larger companies, right? I mean, yeah. that's mm -hmm. typically how it goes. So if you're submitting screenplays, it's not like you're just going to say, oh, I'm going to submit it to, you know, MGM or, or Paramount or 20th Century Fox. I mean, you're, you're going to go to, um, you know, like uh, Ridley Scott's production company or, um, you know, all these smaller production companies. Yeah. That, Pretty accurate? Yes, certainly. And okay. if, if say, let's say that you have a spec screenplay, so something that you've written for free, but that an agent or producer is going to send out that typically if they're sending out a new script and they're trying to um, introduce a new writer, they would send it to anywhere between 50 to 100 production companies. And okay. your hope is that all of those companies either want to buy it or more likely read it, like it, and then want to meet with you. And so what's oftentimes writers will go on what we call the water bottle tour, which is where they're going <laughs> to meet all these different companies. And because of every meeting they say, you know, would you like a bottle of water? Um, that's the water bottle. <laughs> now, is there any way just to submit a screenplay like without an agent or anything, just like a, a normal schmo, you know, just get it into those companies? Not or is it... really. I mean, no. I know that there are exceptions, but mainly you need that personal recommendation and that could be from a friend, that could be from a personal acquaintance, that could be from someone that you've met online, better at someone who you've worked with or worked on another film, and they say, you know, Jason, I would love to read your next script. Oh, I've read it. You know, I worked on this other movie with this producer. I think he or she would really like it. Um, okay. You know, that's the kind of, that's the way that it typically happens. But it, it's not necessarily an agent. It just has to be somebody who can, like, who's connected that can vouch yeah, for you. Yeah, someone who says, okay. you know, I've worked with... I worked with this producer and I've read the script. I like those. I'm going to put you together. That's okay. all that it really needs to be. Okay. I mean, another, the other paths that people take for whom if, if, if getting any sort of referral is not possible for a variety of circumstances, I know for some people that is not possible. The other two paths, which are much, much lower in um, frequency of it working, but they can work. It can work is, um, posting your script on the blacklist, you know, mm -hmm. listing service. There are right. some producers and agents and managers who um, search scripts on the blacklist. And as long as yours gets a really excellent rating, then I think that that is um, 
an avenue for some people is worth pursuing. Um, there also is the screenplay contest um, okay. avenue where there's so many screenplay contests. Personally, I recommend the the studio executives and agents are really paying attention to the Nickel and the Austin Film Festival screenwriting contest. Some others to some degree, but um, mainly it's the Nickel and Austin Film Festival. So for some people applying to that, if they have the kind of script that could win a contest, um, that can be another avenue too. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Why, why is it the, that seems kind of random? The Austin you mean film? why those two? Yeah. Those two have just been the most established for a really long time. And there have been okay. a number of really exceptional screenwriters who've gone on to have big commercial careers from the nickel. Um, and they're, you know, um, sponsored, organized by the Academy, who, you know, who uh, produces the Academy Awards. So it's a within Hollywood organization, basically, within the establishment. So people like to, you know, stay within people they know, of course. Um, and then Austin Film Festival is really, in my opinion, the best film festival for screenwriters. And they also have, I mean, by far the most high-level screenwriters attending that conference over anyone in the world. Um, and so there have been a number of people who win that contest who also go on to having um, careers. So there's like a precedent of people know that those winners go on to have careers. Also, there are giant contest with thousands of entries so the so it's a really high bar the person who's won has won over thousands of other entries whereas in some of the smaller contests if you win over a few hundred sure that's still good but it may not be playing like in the major league um right. like the nickel and austin yeah a lot of the people that are in the indie world talk about you know it's good to get a to win or to do really well in a screenwriting contest solely just to get like investors on board on a, in an independent film, you know? Yeah, I think that's true. I think it's the same kind of like, you're always looking for that third party validation where it's right. someone else saying, I think this is great rather than, you know, I think, of course, I think my child is beautiful. You know, my child is brilliant, <laughs> but it's very right. different, you know, but it's my baby. And that's how a lot of people are about their screenplays and their and their films. Of course, you love it. This is your baby, but your um, love for it does not have the same, um, you know, valid. It, it isn't as valid as mm -hmm. someone else saying, uh, "This is the best script I've read this year." Right. Uh, now, I want to talk a little bit. You you did a lot of um, screen screenplay reading, right? Yes. Oh, yes. Thousands. So, you know, can you talk a little bit about what, you know, I, I want to try to hurry things up because I know you got to go. Um, but what what are the things that you can share with screenwriters that just kind of like makes you pump the brakes and say, OK, because uh, I used to read screenplays, too, and, and I, I could get to, you know, I could get really to like page maybe 10, 10 15 and be like, OK, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's the hard part. It's hard to imagine how many screenplays um, screenwriter, you know, uh, script readers are reading. And when I was at an MGM, um, we would get one of my one of my jobs um, was to be the story editor, which was in charge of the staff of professional readers, and that we would get more than 
3,000 scripts per year, that all of which needed to be evaluated, read, coverage done, you know, disseminated to the right executives um, and handled appropriately. And mm. if you're reading even, you know, three screenplays a day, two screenplays a day, it gets really tiresome. And so for me, that 10 page is about all I could make it. And if I wasn't interested <laughs> in finding out what was going to happen to these characters, or there was something intriguing, or there was some interesting part of the voice, or something interesting in the setting, or something funny or scary, or elicited some sort of emotion that I just wasn't going to do. I didn't have the time, you know, to read, to find the amazing sequence that was on page 65. Right. Yeah, that, that's one of the big things that, that I always try to teach with screenwriting classes and things is just like, you know, you have a very short window of time where you got to hook people in and create some sort of mystery that people want to figure out. They're going to yeah. go with you on this trip, you know? Yeah. And if you don't Very create that, you know, and I, I've, I've read so many screenplays where people just kind of like, there'll be conversations going on and Bob will go to a party and they'll come back home. And then, and it's like, not, nothing is like making you want to read more, you know? And I always right. tell people, I'm like, you know, you've got to, you've got to really try to be like, even create like a cliffhanger, you know? Yes. Like yes. What, what's going to happen, you know? And this is what's hard. And no one is saying screenwriting is easy. I don't think anyone yeah. is. I certainly am not. It is really, really hard to do well. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things I've had to learn over the years. You know, I mean, I've been writing for, you know, 20 years now. Uh -huh. um, and, you know, when I first started, I would just be like, oh, I'm just going to write a story. And when you when you really, you know, you learn something about filmmaking all the time, one of my big uh I'm a huge Spielberg fan. Uh -huh. So, you know, one of the things that you can do, like Jaws is one of my all-time favorite it's movies. Amazing. So when I, yeah. when you watch that, I was talking to somebody the other day and I was like, watch that and think to yourself, what is he doing to you? What is he making you like? A master he, at scaring you, yeah. getting you to be like. <laughs> yeah. Uh -huh. So, and, and you just like, as much as you enjoy those movies, you know, uh, somebody said to me the other day, I can't remember who it was, but they were like, if you're sitting there and you're enjoying the movie, you're not watching it as a filmmaker. Oh. If you're enjoying it, you're not watching it. You're, you're seeing, they're putting their spell on you. Uh -huh. You know, you don't have your you critical have like, eye. Yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh. And even Spielberg would, would say like, if you want to learn filmmaking, turn down the volume and watch all the camera moves because every single move there is a different setup. It's a different reason. It's explaining, you know, it's there for a reason. Yeah. You know, and even if you watch like Jurassic Park or whatever, you watch all the different ways the camera moves and it tells that, you know, exactly what's going on by the camera movement. Kurosawa was the same way. You know exactly yeah. what's happening, you know? Yeah. Um, and so like with, with screenwriting, it's kind of, you know, that's one of the biggest things that I, I learned when, I, you know, I would just go out and start writing dialogue and things would happen. But it was like scene by scene. You have to make people want to know what's, you know, every scene has to make you want to know more or else you just like, that's what you see in movies where you just kind of like get bored, you know, yeah. because you stop asking questions. Exactly. Sorry. <laughs> no, you're exactly right. So well said. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, I, let me just uh, round it out with uh, sure. my, my typical question. If you could go back in time and talk to yourself when you were just getting started, what would be your advice to yourself? Oh, I wish I had learned to say no more sooner. So much of my first few years in the business was 
I took on anything that someone would ask me, you know, do this job, do this job, do this job, do this job. I felt like I needed to do it because the job was so competitive. There are so many other people who would kill to have that opportunity. And so I just, I mean, worked my fingers truly to the bone and didn't sleep and worked around the clock um, every weekend for way too long. And in a way, it, I mean, it only takes perspective now to look back and say, you know, and they that that was not the way to get the most respect. Yes, I got respect because I proved that I would work really hard and I did a really good job and I moved up that way. But people would have respected me much more quickly if I had said, you know, that's not my job or here's the things I'm doing. Which should what what things should I deprioritize so that I make sure that you do your most important tasks or, you know, I, there were things that I should have said no to earlier to be able to focus on the things that were really going to help my career. And so many projects, oh my gosh, as an executive that were just never going to happen. I spent too much time carefully writing notes and being really kind to the <laughs> writer and the director and make sure everyone's happy, even though the project was going nowhere. And that was a waste of everyone's timeline included. All right. So you're a people pleaser. Oh, way too much. Yes. We can talk about <laughs> it in therapy. Yeah, I mean, I come from North Carolina, so when I went out to L.A., they just, like, they ate me up. They were like, oh, yeah. that's so polite. Let's just get them to, you know, go do that. Do, do everything. That. Yes, that's yeah. totally how I was. I'm not like that anymore, but it took a while for me to um, to turn the corner on that. Right. Okay. Um, so how can people get in touch with you? They The best way is my website, which is goodinaroom.com, and I have a blog that has lots of free information and free resources, screenplays, um, examples of pitches, lots of helpful advice. So my goal is to really share as much um, free advice as I can on my um, blog at goodinaroom.com, um, and I also have, uh, I'm on Twitter and on Facebook at goodinaroom. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Thank you. I want to thank Jason so much for doing such a great job on this episode. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, head over to the show notes at bulletproofscreenwriting.tv forward slash 337. Thank you so much for listening, guys. As always, keep on writing no matter what. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast at bulletproofscreenwriting.tv. 